I've entitled the sermon today this, Growing into Jesus. Growing into Jesus. It happens on a pretty regular basis for me, this phenomenon I'm going to share with you. It just happened a couple days ago, actually. Uh, Trent got home from a beach trip and introduced me to uh, three of his college buddies that he went to the beach with from their Christian club. And uh, the first words out of their mouth when they saw me was, you look just like Trent. (laughs) This happens all the time. And my patent response when somebody says that, which is about every other week, is he's a good-looking fella, isn't he? And they say yes, and they realize they just gave me a compliment in the process because they said I'd look just like him. So it, this is a, it's been a unique experience for my son and I to look the same and have people recognize that throughout our whole lives. And this is a result of biological children. Children have half of their DNA from their mom and half their DNA from their dad. And sometimes there's a dominant trait from one or the other in your genetic makeup and the way you look and your characteristics. But for the most part, you're usually a good conglomeration of the two. So we look like our parents. We have the traits of our parents, the physique of our parents, the the style of our parents, the hair of our parents or grandparents, right? Well, this, what is true in the physical realm, is also true in the spiritual realm. You see, when you are born into this world, though you are physically a child of your parents, you are born, get this, a child of the devil. Not every human being is a child of God, regardless of what Oprah Winfrey says. According to the Bible, we're born children of the devil. We are spiritually not children of God. But an amazing thing happens when you're converted into Christ. You're adopted into the family of God. You're given a new nature. You're given a new name, a new identity. And here's what happens. Over time, you start to look like Jesus. You start to adopt the character traits like Jesus. This is what happens. This will eventually come to pass completely and finally when we see Jesus face to face. But in our experience right now on this earth, this is a process we're going through. Let me show you a couple of passages real quickly, uh, just a handful, to show you this is our destiny, to be conformed into the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29 says this, for those whom he foreknew, that's the children of God, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. So Christian, it is your destiny to be just like Jesus. It is your destiny to look like Christ. God has also declared in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, what? Into the same image. We're starting to look like Jesus from one degree of glory to another. The apostle John put it this way. He said, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Again, that's just a handful of passages that present this reality for the Christian, for the adopted child of God. We are being conformed into the image of Christ. And it is this subject matter that Paul brings up in this concluding section in his letter to a church he planted, a church he established, and a church he loved, the church in Thessalonica. So let's consider our focal passage. We're going to read from verse 23 of chapter 5 to the end of the book. Here's what the Bible says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, this whole concept of being conformed into the image of Christ, this whole concept of looking more and more like Jesus is the biblical or theological word sanctification. Many of you have heard that word. We use that word, sanctification. In fact, it is the key verb in the passage we just read. Look again at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's the verb form. Um, Hagiazo is the Greek word. You don't need to know that except to know that the noun form, hagios, is translated in the Bible, in the New Testament, as holy or set apart. So the verb sanctify means to be made holy. God is holy, therefore we should be holy. It means to be set apart, right? This is sanctify. This is sanctification. It means typically to refer to being set apart or to be being declared holy for God's purposes. Now, this idea of being set apart, of being sanctified, of being declared holy for God's purposes is all through the Bible, all the way back in the Old Testament. The word in Hebrew first shows up in chapter 2. After the seven days of creation, God rested on the seventh day, and the Bible says he sanctified or declared holy the seventh day. You move into the book of Exodus, and God declares holy, set apart, sanctified, the firstborn of every family, the firstborn of even the animals. He declared that the nation of Israel was holy unto him. They were set apart. They were sanctified for his purposes. He declares that Aaron and his descendants are to be the priests unto God in the nation of Israel. They are set apart. They are sanctified for this priestly function. When they build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, it was sanctified. When they built the temple under Solomon, it was sanctified, set apart, declared holy. When Jesse, uh, the, the father of David, has Samuel come and visit his home, Samuel looks at all his sons, and until he gets to David, he realizes this is the declared king of Israel, and he is sanctified, set apart, holy unto God for God's purposes. So this is the concept of what it means to be set apart. You move into the New Testament. This same concept is there. John the Baptist was sanctified, set apart, declared holy for God's purposes to be the forerunner of the disciple of Jesus. Jesus set apart his disciples as holy unto the Lord, right? Acts chapter 6, the first deacons were set apart, declared holy unto the Lord. Acts chapter 13, Paul and, and Silas were, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas were set apart to be missionaries. Again, all through the Bible, even go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. This noun form, hagios, is all through the book of Revelation. You know who it refers to? See, sometimes it's translated holy. Sometimes it's translated saints. It's referring to every Christian in the book of Revelation. They're referred to as saints, holy ones. The prayers of the saints ascend to the throne. Here's the thing. Listen, saints, biblically, 
are not dead people who have been declared holy by a church council. That is not a saint. A saint is every blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ. The epistles in the New Testament are written to the saints in Lookout Valley. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been declared a saint. You're holy, you're set apart, sanctified for God's purposes. So this is an important concept as we study this last section of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Because here in our focal text, it's the verb form, sanctify, that is the root word, the the theme of this whole passage. Now, to understand this process or declaration of sanctified, I want us to consider four things from the text this morning. The first one is this. I want us to think about the source of sanctification. Who is the source of our sanctification? Well, Paul begins this conclusion with these words, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Friends, God is the one who sanctifies us. God is the one who changes us. God is the one who sets us apart. God is the one who conforms us into the image of his son, Jesus. It did not say, and by the way, this is a prayer. Paul is praying a prayer for them and for us. And his prayer was not, I pray God will help you as you sanctify yourself. I pray that God will aid you as you try the best you can. Uh, He did not pray, God helps those who help themselves. That's not sanctification. The only source for your sanctification, for your being conformed into the image of God, the image of his beloved son, is God himself. He says, now may God, the God of peace himself, sanctify you completely. Now, having said that, there are expectations we have as Christians. Over the last two weeks, do you remember how many explicit directives were in each of those passages? We had 10 two weeks ago, and then we had eight last week. In just a short paragraph, there were 18 specific directives, commands, imperatives Paul gave them and is giving us as an apostle that we're to obey. So it's not that we just sit around and do nothing. I do not like the phrase, let go and let God. You heard that before? Because at best, it's misleading. At best, it tells us you just sit back and you let God do it it all. That's not the process of sanctification. There are disciplines we must adopt. There are habits we must drop. This is what is involved in the sanctification. But bottom line, God does the work. And I believe, at least in part, this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at. Listen, God is more interested in you becoming holy than you are. God is more concerned about your holiness than any of us are concerned about our holiness. God's the one, therefore, who does the work. It doesn't matter how earnest a Christian you are, how Bible-believing and Bible-studying you are, God is more interested in your sanctification than you are in growing into Jesus. And the fact is, the entire Godhead, the triune God, is purposed and is focused on your sanctification. He is focused on your growing into the likeness of Jesus. And so what do we draw from that? We draw from that. If God is so interested in our sanctification, then we ought to be as well. We ought to consider these 18 specific commands we looked at the last two weeks and the other commands and imperatives of the Scripture that we ought to 
do what he's called us to do, because at the end of the day, God is the one who makes us holy. And did you notice the title Paul used for God here? May the God of peace, Irene in the Greek, Irenic. Does anybody know the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. Good job, students. Shalom. God is sometimes called in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, Jehovah or Yahweh Shalom. Yahweh Shalom, the God of peace. Now, Jewish folks, when they greet one another, they greet one another with that greeting, Shalom. But it means so much more than just peace as we understand peace. Shalom is so much more than just the cessation of hostilities between warring factions. When, when Jewish folks say shalom to one another, it is a blessing of prosperity, a blessing of happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in your life. Shalom. And Paul, who is an educated Jewish theologian, says to these Gentiles, Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace, the God of satisfaction, of happiness, of fulfillment, will sanctify you completely. Now, why is this important? Because the devil tells you just the opposite. The devil tells you, you want to be happy? You want to be fulfilled? You want to be satisfied in life? You got to chuck this holiness thing behind you. You can't be holy and happy. And God says, no. The greatest fulfillment and life and satisfaction and, yes, happiness is found in holiness. They are inextricably linked together. The God of peace, Jehovah Shalom himself, sanctify you completely. Friend, because at the end of the day, we're not created by God to be fully satisfied or fulfilled in anything else than him. Though we try to. We try to find satisfaction in all kinds of things. We cannot be completely satisfied than in him. And so the God of peace, Jehovah Shalom, is the source of our sanctification. Here's the second thing I want us to see from this passage. The stages of sanctification. The stages of sanctification. In the New Testament, there are three stages or phases of sanctification that are mentioned. I'm going to cover them real quickly on your outline, and then we'll go back and we'll kind of discuss one of them in particular that it is particularly connected to our day-to-day life. The first stage of sanctification is that we have been sanctified positionally in the past. If you're a Christian and you have come to faith in Christ, you've been regenerated, you've been brought from death to life, born again by the power of the Spirit, you have been positionally sanctified at the moment of your conversion. What does this mean? You are set apart for God's purposes. God has secured our personal sanctification positionally in the past. It's a done deal. In fact, notice how Hebrews 10, verse 10 puts it. The Bible says, and by that will we, past tense, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's the position of every believer. Positionally, we've been sanctified in the past. Secondly, we are being sanctified progressively in the present. So sanctification is not only a past tense declaration, sanctified, set apart for God's purposes. Sanctification is also a progression that happens throughout our lives as Christians. We're progressively more and more 
becoming like Jesus. You go back to Hebrews 10, just four verses down. Notice the tense changes. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those, present tense, who are being sanctified. Well, which is it? Have we been sanctified or are we being sanctified? Yes, (laughs) it's both. You've been set apart, but there's also this process of the Christian living that happens in the here and now where we are being conformed into the image of Christ. We are progressively being being sanctified, but that leads to the third stage of sanctification. That is, we will be sanctified perfectly in the future. There's coming a time when, as John said, when we see him face to face, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. This is the ultimate sanctification. This is the final holiness that God works in our lives. He makes believers sinless in body, in soul, and in spirit. In fact, notice how Philippians 3 describes this future perfection. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he going to do when he comes back? Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. This is the future realization of being sanctified. This is what the Bible talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, where every marriage is to represent this gospel picture, that Jesus is preparing for himself a bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish. This is the sanctification that will happen. Now, what I want to do for the next few minutes is spend really an extended period of time talking about this second stage or phase of sanctification, this progressive sanctification, because this is where we're living right now. This is the life we're in. And so let's look at verse 23 of our focal text one more time. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, that's the verb, completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are three areas Paul identifies here of complete sanctification. I have them underlined. Spirit and soul and body. Now, what I'm going to present to you is the position of what's called a trichotomist. You don't need to know that word. I am a trichotomist. What that means is tri means three. I believe God has created human beings with three components or three parts. We see them there in the passage. Now, there are Bible-believing scholars who I uh, recommend and who I respect who are dichotomists. They see us simply as body and soul, and they see soul and spirit as synonymous terms. I believe we're three parts, and you'll kind of see why as we go through the text. This is a third-level issue, tertiary issue. This is not a doctrine for breaking fellowship with somebody else. The dichotomists are wrong, and that's okay. But um, we're going to look at the trichotomists, which which I believe is what uh, Paul's describing here. In fact, look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit. So we've got body, soul, and spirit, three components. And it makes sense. We were created in God's image. God is triune. It makes sense that we who are created in his image are also triune. But again, this is not a point of division that we fight about. So help us understand um, the design that God has wrought in each of us. I've got a diagram. We're all different types of learners. Some of us are visual learners. Some of us are tactile learners. 
So auditory learning. So we're going to have a little visual learning process here. And so look on your outline. In fact, go and go to the next slide, and you'll see this diagram has essentially three concentric circles. And I want to want you to um, write down these three words, just as you see them there, for these three concentric circles. The outer circle is your flesh or your body. The next one is your soul, and the inner circle would be your spirit. These three parts or components function differently in our lives, so, so let me kind of briefly explain them. Your flesh, your body, is the physical you. It's the sensory you. What are our five senses? Sight, smell, taste, hear, touch. So your physical body, your flesh, has appetites. There are certain things you like to see, certain things we like to taste, things we like to hear, like to touch. So we have appetites and tendencies and bents. We have a physical body. We have a flesh. But further, we have a soul. Now, the the Greek word here for soul is psuche, from which we get our English words psychology, um, psychiatry, right? So what is psychiatry? What is psychology? It's the study of human thinking, the study of human choosing, the study of human feeling. This is psychology. This is psychiatry. To think about the realm of the soul, to care for the soul. Uh, and then we have spirit, pneuma in the Greek. Your spirit is how you relate to God. It's your heart for God. It's your passion for God. It's your worship of God. Jesus told the woman at the well, God the Father is looking for true worshipers who worship him how? In spirit and in truth. In fact, it's interesting. There are really three different Greek verbs in the New Testament that are translated into our English word life. One is the Greek word bios, from which we get biology. That's the physical. Another is the word psuche, where we just looked at it, soul. It's your intellectual, emotional, volitional life. And the other word is zoe. Zoe's not here. We've got a zoe in our church. It means spiritual life. So those are the three realms of our existence, our zoe, our psuche, our biology, body, soul, spirit. Not if you're with me. You tracking with me? Okay, so this is who we are. We're made up of these three parts. Now, here's the thing. When you were born into this world, you had no zoe. You had no spiritual life. You were dead unto God. But Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And we have life. We have Zoe. We have spiritual life when we're born again. All human beings, saved or unsaved, have biological life. They all have psychological life, but not every human being has spiritual life unto God. Now, I want us to just focus in on our soul. And you see, I've got three little lines there, three sections of our soul. And I've kind of mentioned these, but I want you to see what they are in particular. Look at the next slide. Our soul is made up of our mind, our ability to think and believe. Our soul is made up of our will, our ability to choose, to make decisions. And our, mind, our soul is made up of our emotions. This is your personality. You are not a body who has a soul. You are a soul who has a body. Your soul will live forever. Your personality 
you will be saved and you will be fully sanctified in heaven, but you'll still be you. This is you. Your mind, your will, and emotions. Now watch this. Look at the next slide. What you think, what you believe, impacts your will, what you choose. And then the choices you make influence your emotions. And watch this. Has your feelings, your emotions ever impacted what you're thinking? Sure. So let's put it like this. This never happens, but let's say my wife says something unkind to me. And so I'm thinking, two can play this game. In the realm of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to cut her deep. And I make a choice based on my stinking thinking. The choice is to cut her back deeply. She's dejected. I leave the space. What follows that choice? Emotions. What an idiot am I? How could I wound her like that? Then it starts to affect my thinking and my believing. I'm a loser. I don't even deserve her. And then that thinking affects my choosing. And then that choosing affects my emotions. And all of a sudden, you've got a vicious cycle that spirals out of control. And this is why people commit suicide. But I want you to know something. Look at this next slide. The battleground is in the mind. What you think and what you believe. You've got to stop the stinking thinking. Let me just show you a couple of passages where this is borne out. Romans chapter 12, 2. These are all familiar to us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. What you think, what you believe. Romans 8, 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. That's what we want. Life and peace. Look at Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Finally, one more. I could give you many. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So to stop the vicious cycle of choices and emotions and false thinking, the battleground is the mind. What you believe about God and what you believe about what God says about you and your identity in him. Now, let's go back to our God diagram. There are three negative impulses or influences that impact our thinking. I want to reveal them. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. We... uh, Tracy read this in our worship time together. I didn't know he was going to read it whenever I was preparing this message. Look at Ephesians 2. I've got them underlined. And you were dead. That was your spiritual condition, spiritually dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. There's one negative influence. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit. That's the other negative influence that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So three negative influences on our thinking. Back to our diagram. We can fill in these blanks here. You've got the world, the devil, 
and the flesh. And I want you to draw little lines. I know your diagram's getting filled up with lines and such. You may not understand it later. But the world sends information to your mind. The evil one, Satan, sends information to our minds. And our own flesh, with its appetites and proclivities, sends information to our thinking, what you should do and what you should feel. For instance, let's consider the negative influence of the world. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, gave this clear warning about the world in 1 John 2, 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, the world calls us to conform. The world is on an eight-lane superhighway headed to hell and says, y'all come on and get on the highway with us. The world refers to this system of belief that is contrary to God. We have an influence of the world, not if you agree with that. The world is influencing us negatively. Second negative influence, Ephesians 2 points out, is the devil or Satan. Satan is a fallen angel who has an organized, demonized network and army. Listen to me. The number one thing Satan hates is the glory of God. God is all about his glory. So the one thing Satan hates is the glory of God. Back in heaven, whenever he rebelled, why did he rebel against God? He hated his glory. He wanted some of that glory. So you know what Satan's whole plan and scope of activity is? To somehow diminish the glory of God being expressed in your life, and that's exactly what you were created to do. So if he can derail you from God's purposes, even as a Christian who's been born again, he's diminishing the glory of God you were created and you were regenerated to provide. So he's another negative influence. And the third one is one we've already considered, and that is our flesh, our base nature. Notice how Galatians 5 describes our flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, negative. And the desires of the spirit, positive, are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The flesh, again, is our base nature. It's our appetites to sin. And the basic mark of the flesh is just simply being unsubmissive to the rule of God. Unsubmissive to God. So here's the battle. Anybody experience this in their life? The world, the flesh, the devil, the negative impulses that come upon us? This is the realm of progressive sanctification where we're supposed to be becoming more and more like Jesus. Do you see how it's only a work of God? <laughs> only God in this type of life experience could shape us more and more to be like Christ. Again, the battleground is the mind, what you think on, so be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Set your mind not on the things of the flesh, for that's death, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Set them on the things of the Spirit, for that's life, Colossians chapter 3. Set your minds on things above, where Christ is. And this is the daily struggle, the daily fight. And it is a fight until the day we die. Apostle Paul, in his last letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, 2 Timothy, he said these words, knowing his time was over, he said, I have fought the good fight. He knew he had never arrived, not till he would see Jesus face 
to faith. So God is the source of our sanctification, and we have these stages of sanctification, but that really connects to this third thing to notice. Number three, this is good news, the security of our sanctification. The security of our sanctification. Notice in verse 23 and 24, the promise of security. I mentioned it earlier in our prayer time. We will be kept. (laughs) He is keeping us. We will be kept blameless. What? Me blameless? You don't know me. We will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Paul is saying it's not only God's purpose to make you completely perfect in the end, but it is God's purpose to keep you until the end. About eight years ago, I was at a pastor's conference in Louisville, Kentucky called Together for the Gospel. Some of you have heard of it. And there with about 7,000 other preachers, I was enjoying the, the great preaching and the wonderful worship of these men lifting up their voices to the Lord. And I was there really to see one person, my favorite living preacher, John Piper. And I would leave my hotel three hours early to go scope out the front row so I could be as close to the platform as possible. And there I was, and he was going to be preaching from Jude, one chapter, the, the closing benediction of the book of Jude. Look at Jude chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And when John Piper got up to preach in front of 7,000 preachers who all admired and respected him, I'll never forget how he opened the sermon. Here's what he said. Look at this next slide. He said, I am amazed when I wake up in the morning that I'm still a Christian. And I realize the fact that I wake up in the morning and that I am still a Christian is entirely due to the preserving grace of God. God has preserved me. What a great promise. And this is the promise that Paul is communicating to the church in Thessalonica as well. That they have a security in their sanctification. That they are being supernaturally kept by God. Friend, if you woke up this morning still believing the gospel, it is not because of you. It's because of the grace of God keeping you. And that preserving and keeping work of God is ensured by His character. He is faithful. He is faithful. He will by no means cast you out No one can pluck you out of his hands. He is faithful. He will do it. That's the security of our sanctification, which really leads to this fourth and final thing, the sphere of sanctification. Where does God do this work of keeping? Where does God do this work of forming us into the image of Christ? What is the realm? What is the sphere where this happens Friends, it ain't at home watching TV preachers. It's not being by yourself reading a good Christian book, though I commend those to you. The sphere 
of growing into the likeness of Christ is right here. (laughs) This is it. The community of faith, the family of faith. This is the realm. Notice this final instruction. Not once, not twice, but three times. He uses a word. I have it underlined on the outline there that he used over and over through these five chapters. Let's read it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. See, the realm, the sphere where our growth into the likeness of Jesus happens is with our spiritual family. Look at those commands. Those commands there cannot be obeyed by yourself. You can't greet brothers with a holy kiss by yourself. You can't read publicly the Scripture by yourself. I mean, you can, but it's not obeying the command. This is a community project. It it's, happens within the context of family. In fact, notice, I've pointed this out before. I've, I've pointed you towards this website. Just go to yallversion.com. And what the Y'all version does is it takes the English Bible, and everywhere in the Greek there is the second person plural pronoun. It translates it not as you, like our proper English, but it translates it as y'all. There's also a Boston version that says yins, if you want to. (laughs) Look at the first two verses of our text in the y'all version. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify y'all completely. And may y'all's whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls y'all is faithful, he will surely do it. Again, friends, this is a community project. This is all of y'all together as we grow in Christ into the image of his beloved son. You see, the reason on that final day, you and I, y'all, will be kept secure is because God does not view us in our sin. This is why it's a community project. Because when we can come together in this place, we've got to remind ourselves, no matter how much I messed up with my wife this week, we remind ourselves, my sin is forgiven. We sing the gospel, we pray the gospel, we preach the gospel. We remind ourselves together that when God looks at us, He sees us in Christ. He sees us completely forgiven. And God will sanctify us. Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace, will sanctify you completely because the requirements of His righteous justice have been fully satisfied and met in Christ. I'll close with this. 18th century poet and hymn writer by the name of Augustus Toplady. He's the author of probably the most familiar of his works is Rock of Ages Cleft for Me. On one occasion, he was contemplating this being kept in Christ. He was considering some of the thoughts and beliefs in his own mind and his own stinking thinking about fear and unbelief. Where are those coming from? So he reminded himself of the gospel. And notice how he put it so poetically. Again, this is 1700s language, so hang with me. From whence this fear and unbelief? 
Has not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin, which, Lord, was charged on thee? If Christ my discharge has procured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, God will not payment twice demand, first at my dying Savior's hand and then again at mine. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what we come together to celebrate week in and week out. This is what we remind ourselves of as the stinking thinking from the world and from the devil and from the flesh through Monday through Saturday are dragging us down. We come together to say, let fear and unbelief be dispelled from your thinking. Christ has taken the full punishment for you. And you may be here this morning And when we looked at that diagram of body, soul, and spirit, you may still be in your sins. You may not have a spirit alive unto God because you've never been born again. You've never been quickened from the dead and placed your faith in Christ's work on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into glory. Friend, today is the day of salvation. Place all your hope in him. Place all your trust in what Jesus has done for you. And you will be sanctified, past tense. Sanctified, present tense, progressively. And there's a promise we will eternally be sanctified perfectly forever. And that leads to my last thought. The hope, there is hope. There is hope. The hope of our sanctification is grounded in the character of God. He will surely do it. 